Okay. I'm doing a loop today. Um, it's, uh, I'm really delighted this morning to be able to introduce our speaker, uh, Madison McBlain. Um, Maddie grew up here at the church. I always feel a little bit sad, thank you, sad because I arrived just like a couple of months after she left to go away to school. So we've been just getting to know each other, uh, whenever she's visiting since then. But Maddie's in, uh, just finished her third year at Ambrose University. Um, and she has one year left, and I asked her what her hobbies are, and she sort of laughed and said, well, they're being outside and reading and writing. (laughs) I think sometimes when you're a full-time student, that's all the hobbies you have time for, right? It's basically your hobbies are writing papers and doing the research for them. (laughs) So um, I asked her what did she hope her hobbies might be when she was 80, and she said, well, I'd like to be traveling and gardening and probably still reading and writing. <laughs> so I think that's good. We're well on track. Anyway, Maddie, you can come up to the front. Um, I love having Maddie bring the word of God to her. Last time you were here, somebody told me they thought you were better than me and Tom. And so I I feel like really excited for you. I'm a little tiny bit offended. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, I'm really glad to have you here. I love having your perspective, and um, I love receiving the word of God from you. So let me pray for for you You guys. Pray with me for Maddie. Um, Father, we're so grateful for this woman and the gifts that you have given her, the way that you have anointed her to bring your good news. We pray that you would pour your spirit out on her this morning and that you would give her every good gift and that what she has to say would be what we need to hear. Um, for our salvation and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. I think I'm good. Yeah, I think it's working. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Maddie, and I have the great honor of calling Erickson Covenant Church my home church. Um, Although I moved away about four years ago to go to university, um, this community and these people will always hold a very special place in my heart. When Dana asked if I would be willing to come and preach a sermon in this series, I was absolutely thrilled to come and be able to um, see everyone again and also to teach in front of some of my favorite people. This summer, we've been reading through a passage of scripture commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is a section of text in the Bible that gives us some of Jesus' own words about what it means to be a faithful Christian. If you've been around the church for the last couple of months or maybe you've been following along online, then you'll know that the Sermon on the Mount is a message that Jesus gives to some of his closest friends and followers. It's a message that was then written down and recorded in the book of Matthew, which is one of the four stories or books recorded about Jesus' life. Today, the Sermon on the Mount still instructs Christians on how to follow Jesus faithfully. But, like most of the Bible, it doesn't serve us very well as a rule book. Rather, we can think of it as sort of a blueprint of what a life lived well looks like. Now, I'm not sure about you, but the words living a good life sound pretty familiar, right? I think we're in the golden age of self-improvement, books that tell us how to be more efficient or more disciplined, maybe more generous or more tidy are all over the bestsellers list right now. And don't get me wrong, a big part of me actually loves this. Nothing motivates me more than the feeling that if I try hard enough, I can probably become more disciplined, more efficient, or more tidy. I mean, if you promise me that I can somehow improve myself in, like, five easy steps, I will absolutely be there listening, hanging on to your every word. 
But whether I like it or not, the words of Jesus don't really promise anything like that. Rather, Jesus' teaching, and this Sermon on the Mount in particular, lay out a set of general principles that illustrate Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God. And as we'll see today, Jesus um, illustrates these general principles using some really specific examples. I really loved following along in the texts for this series so far. The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus addressing Old Testament law called Torah, a law that his Jewish followers and friends and he himself as a Jewish man would have been really familiar with and would have lived by. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses some legalistic and unloving interpretations of the law, not by overturning the law, but rather expanding or uh, expanding our ma- imagination for it. For example, Jesus says, "You have heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, rather. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." Now, that's just one specific example. But Jesus' broader message throughout this early section of the Sermon on the Mount is that the law will only get us so far. Jesus' imagination for a life that honors God, prioritizes love, is the ultimate summary of the law. You might have seen that as a common thread throughout the beginning of this series as Jesus answers the question of how God's people should live in light of God's law. Now, that was the first part of this Sermon of Jesus's, but last week we moved into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began by talking about how God's people should live in light of God's law, and now he addresses how we should live in light of the presence of God. So today, we're going to talk about righteousness and justice, about self-deception, about a new kind of prayer, and finally about fasting. But before we jump into all of that, will you take a moment to pray with me? Gracious and loving God, you are the one who is constantly drawing near to us in our prayers and in our worship, but also in the everyday and ordinary moments of our lives. And we trust that even when we don't feel your nearness particularly, um, that you are still close and that you are still present. And may we notice this presence of yours in all areas of our life, in the beauty that surrounds us in nature, also in the love that surrounds us in relationships and friendships and family, and in the peace that surrounds us by your spirit. God, as we read your word today, may our ears and our hearts be open to hear your truth. For those of us who are anxious or distressed, may your word bring us peace. For those of us who are hurting or brokenhearted, God, may your word bring us healing. And for those of us who are seeking clarity or maybe direction, God, would your word bring us guidance. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, I know we're only one sentence into the text here, but let's stop here for a moment. If you haven't noticed, maybe you have, I'm actually rewinding us a bit. This is a section we looked at last week. Um, First of all, because it's always good to do some review. But second of all, because this actually sets up the section we're looking at today as well. This single verse I just read for you can kind of be thought of as a summary of the rest of chapter 6 that's going to follow it. Jesus makes his point through this general principle 
And then he moves forward to give on three specific examples of this, um, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Last week, we talked about giving. This week, we're turning to prayer and fasting. But first, there's already something kind of important to note here. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. The Greek word for righteousness here is dikaiosune, which can absolutely mean righteousness, but it can just as easily be translated as justice or equity. This same Greek word is translated as justice in Hebrews 11, for example, which describes how the kings and the judges of the Old Testament enacted justice um, during their reigns and rules. And this kind of makes a big difference, right? For English speakers, there's quite a bit of distinction between the words righteousness and justice. Um, Righteousness brings to mind personal acts of good or piety, maybe the word godliness, whereas justice brings to mind um, equality, ethics, the well-being of groups of people, or maybe the entire world. And uh, in Greek, those two English concepts are, as we saw, held in this same word. And in the biblical imagination, it's actually pretty difficult to separate righteousness from justice. So what if we would allow this fact to maybe widen our understanding of the word righteousness, at least for today? What if we thought about righteousness as not only dependent on our own internal piety or even our own external actions, but also dependent on our relationships to one another? And this makes a lot of sense when we see what comes next, which is what Bill walked us through last week. Right after this, Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. Jesus tells us something important about how our righteousness or our justice should be practiced. And the first example he provides for us is about giving to the poor. And if you've read much of the Bible, then you'll know that caring for the poor is one of the central tenets of God's imagination for justice. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this section or this point too much because it's what we covered last week. But let's keep this connection between righteousness and justice in our minds as we move forward today. Jesus gives two more examples that flow out of his initial instruction regarding righteousness. Those are prayer and fasting, and that's where we're going to head next. So let's dive back into the text. Jesus continues, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, who stand on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Let's stop here and talk about a couple of things. First, notice that just like the activity of giving was assumed, so is the activity of prayer. Jesus doesn't say, if you give to the poor, but rather when you give. Not if you pray, but when you pray. Second, notice the word hypocrites. Today, when we talk about hypocrites, we generally think of people who talk one way and act another, right? In the ancient imagination, the term had a little bit more of a broader scope. In a practical sense, it was usually associated with people who performed drama or recited poetry, and this in and of itself wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But the idea of hypocrisy kind of contained within it this idea of deception, putting on a mask, acting, all the other connotations that this word has um, required you to be someone you weren't for the sake of earning other people's praise. Jesus uses the example of people praying in synagogues loudly or on street corners, something that was practiced by some religious leaders of the day. And he uses the label of hypocrite to draw attention that this might not be as pious as it seems at first glance. Scholar Anna Case Winters argues that in the book of Matthew, there's actually a common thread of hypocrisy signaling deception. Um, Not only the deception of others, but also the deception of self. In the verse we just read, we see that the showy prayer of the hypocrites 
um, deceives others into thinking they deserve praise. But it also allows the hypocrite to deceive themselves into thinking they deserve praise or that they are righteous. Um, Anna Case Winters writes this. In this passage, hypocrites believe they are deserving of divine reward. But this is a delusion. They already have their reward in the praise of others. Only those whose piety is wholehearted, that is, arising uh, arising from integrity between internal being and external action, will be rewarded. Now, this really hit home for me, because if I'm honest, it's actually pretty easy to do good things for the wrong reasons and not really have anyone notice. For example, um, if I want to get an A really badly on a group project, I might work extra hard, I might write more words than everyone else in my group, I might log more hours than everyone else in my group, and everyone else in my group might think, wow, Maddie is just such a kind and generous person with her time, putting in extra work for all of our benefit, and, uh, and they'll believe that and that'll be fine. But I know that's not true. I know the truth is is that I have issues with control and I want things to be done my way. But if they thank me and if we get a good grade, I can absolutely walk away deceiving myself into thinking that I have done the right thing for the right reason. My point is that self-deception, at least for me, is actually easier than we think. And in this text, Jesus is calling us away from a showiness and hypocrisy that earns the praise of others and also allows ourselves to deceive ourselves in the process. Let's continue in the text. Jesus continues by saying, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We heard Jesus caution against those who performed showy prayers on street corners and loudly in synagogues, who would make their prayers and piety a show. But now Jesus says, also, don't be like the pagans either, for they just keep talking and talking and talking in the hopes that God will hear them. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, it's important to notice that Jesus isn't just out to get the religious leaders of the day or out to get the pagans of the day, but by cautioning against showy prayers happening on street corners and also the repetitive empty prayers of pagans, Jesus is actually pointing out how our incorrect beliefs about God inform the way we pray. We've already talked about hypocrisy, this act of deception that both harms others and ourselves. But why is Jesus so concerned with how the pagans pray? He says, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now, it's really up for debate what Jesus meant by babbling here. This could mean praying repetitively, praying the same thing over and over and over again, or praying to many different gods at once. It could also even just mean literal babbling, so talking in nonsense in attempts to communicate with the gods. But when it comes down to it, I think Jesus cares less about how we are praying and more about why we are praying that way. Each of these practices, whether it's empty repetition or praying to multiple gods, is based about an incorrect assumption about God, that we have to beg for God's attention. Jesus isn't trying to dismiss the practice of praying aloud or praying in the synagogue, nor is he saying that long prayers or repetitive prayers are inherently bad. Rather, he's making a point about how we misunderstand God. When people pray loudly on street corners for everyone to hear, they misunderstand that God isn't impressed by the same things people are impressed by. And when, God, and when people pray the same things over and over or 
um, cast their prayers to many gods at once in the hopes that someone will listen, they misunderstand that God isn't slow to listen or respond. When we pray, in this sermon, Jesus suggests that God already knows what we need. The act of prayer is not a bother to God, um, not an exercise in seeing who, who can get his attention soonest, but rather prayer is the maintenance of relationship with the divine. Sometimes, in an effort to make prayer comfortable or easy, we say that praying to God is just like talking to a friend. And that's true in many ways. Like a good friend, God knows you and hears you and loves you. But have you ever been talking with a friend and felt like they just didn't quite understand what you were trying to say to them? Or have you ever um, been around friends that you feel like you have to talk in a bit of a different way to or act in a different way because of who they are? Um, Or do you have a friend who you have to text like three times in a row to make sure they respond and arrange a time to hang out? Yeah, right? I think we all have those experiences. And that doesn't make our friends or our friendships bad. Not at all. It just makes them human. God is like a friend in many ways, but God is also not like our friends. God doesn't need to be harassed or even reminded to listen. God is actually listening to us long before we ever decide to bow our heads in prayer. The people Jesus is talking to have forgotten that God is not like them. They've made God into something smaller, maybe something more palatable and easy to understand. And I don't want to sound hard on them here because it's actually really easy to do. All the time, I find myself putting God into a box that I can feel comfortable with, that I can hold in my hands, that I can feel safe around, maybe even control. I want God to be like me. I want God to act in the way I want God to act, and I want God to be easy enough to explain to everyone I see on the street. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that God is not like the people you see and interact with every day. God knows what you need before you say it. God is always attentive, always listening. God doesn't need to be begged or harassed. And in light of all these things, Jesus tells his disciples how to pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus adds this little side note, kind of like a postscript to the end of the prayer. He says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, you could preach a whole sermon on every single one of these lines. And actually, a couple years ago, we did just that in this church. Um, If you're interested in something I say or in anything Um, In this prayer today, I invite you to go online or onto our podcast and check those out. I believe they're from a couple of years ago. We don't have time to go into every detail today, but there are some important things I want to point out. First of all, community is implied in this prayer. Earlier, we read Jesus speaking out against showy synagogue prayers, but that doesn't mean that praying with others or praying out loud or praying in a group is somehow looked down upon. Um, When Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, the you is actually a plural Greek pronoun. So it's more like, um, when y'all pray, pray like this. Further, the prayer itself uses first-person plural pronouns, like our Father, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us. Um, So this prayer is absolutely meant to be shared and spoken by the community. Second, 
Um, I'm not sure about you, but for a long time, I kind of pictured the Lord's Prayer as something that was just dropped into the middle of the Bible. I'm not really sure where it came from or what surrounded it. But when we read it in our Bibles, it's actually part of a cohesive sermon, this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching. And so in order to see Jesus's point in teaching his disciples to pray in this very specific way, um, we want to understand the larger point he's trying to make in this section of the sermon. And what's really helpful about the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus actually kind of makes this side comment at the end of the prayer. So as if he's saying, look, if you didn't get what, what, what I was trying to say from the prayer, I'll spell it out for you right here. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive others, you're only hurting yourself. And so the heart of the Lord's Prayer really is about how we relate to one another. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he's calling, calling his followers into a new kind of righteousness. One that isn't based on outward appearance or the assumption that God is reluctant. The Lord's Prayer demonstrates God's strong desire to remake the world into one that is more just. A world where our own personal piety lines up with our relationships with others, with our relationships with the people around us and the world around us. Now, let's remember, Jesus is using prayer as just one long extended example of the first verse we looked at today, which was, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Last week, we talked about the first example, giving. Prayer was the second. So let's take a brief look at the third and final example, which is fasting. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, even if you don't pray regularly, you're probably somewhat familiar with the practice of prayer. But I think fasting might be a more of a foreign concept for a lot of us. Fasting was a regular part of Jewish practice, religious practice, and it had been for a long time. However, what we see in the Old Testament is that fasting becomes a point of contention between the Hebrew people and their God. Um, Isaiah 58 records a message from God through the prophet Isaiah to the people of God, and it's letting them know that their fasting is not impressing God at all. The story goes like this. The people cry out to God saying, why have we fasted only for you to not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't even noticed? And this is God's response from Isaiah 58. God says, On the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And then God kind of answers God's own question here. No, this is the kind of fasting that I want. Loose the chains of injustice. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And don't hide from your relatives who need your help. And then they receive this promise. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness or your justice will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And then when you call, the Lord will answer, Yes, I am here. 
he will quickly reply. According to what we read in Isaiah 58, performing the rituals of prayer or fasting while turning a blind eye to those who are poor or oppressed or suffering is the worst kind of hypocrisy. Because, you see, the act of fasting really isn't the point at all here. Fasting that uh, reflects true piety will not make a public display of it. The purpose of fasting is not to punish our bodies. Rather, it's to resist this cultural norm of greed accumulation and self-indulgent consumption for the sake of justice. Now, speaking of indulgence, there's one thing we haven't talked about yet. You might have noticed it. It's this word reward that keeps popping up in the verses I've read. Um, Jesus says that God, upon seeing you pray in secret, will reward you, and that if you fast without letting others know, you will be rewarded. It even comes up in the key verse for this section we read earlier, which states that if you practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others, you will have no reward in heaven. Now, if um, you're starting to think that this means that having Jesus' time every morning is going like, to land you a Lamborghini in heaven, I've got some really bad news for you. Most scholars agree that in this context, a reward from God is actually not something that can be earned. But rather, it's a continuation and intensification of the relationship that is already present between Jesus and his disciples. Scholar Warren Carter argues, along with many others, um, that Jesus' promise of a reward is not a promise of financial gain or even material gain, but rather a promise of eschatological hope. That is, a promise that in the end, when it is all said and done, we will be with God. And this is really important to me. Because if we earned God's favor or God's reward by performing acts of prayer or fasting, I mean, God would really just be like all the other people we're trying to impress. And we would be back at square one, right? We often associate ritual with stuffiness or formality or even hypocrisy. And sometimes that bias is founded on reality. It actually makes sense. But in the Sermon on the Mount we see Jesus not doing away with ritual, but recovering it, calling calling his followers to a higher kind of righteousness or a higher kind of justice, one that is not focused solely on personal piety or public praise, but rather on relationships with others, communion with God, and justice for all. So this week, may you know that your prayers are heard by God and held by God. And may your acts of righteousness or piety or justice be founded not in fear or obligation, but in love. And may you resist the urge to strive for the acceptance of others and know that you are accepted and loved already. Will you pray with me? God, you are righteous and you are just. So often we become consumed with doing enough that we forget to see the goodness of you in the world already. God, this week and in the weeks to come, would you remind us continually that the rituals you desire are not empty prayers or public performances, but rather what you desire from us is justice and whole relationships and communion with you. And may we know that you love us apart from the rituals we perform, or the praise we receive from others. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.